Chapter Five of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Five. Little Bilstead receives a shock. Matters were becoming interesting, and there was certainly the promise of drama later. Smith decided as he walked down the drive of the Grange a few minutes after Doctor Crane had taken his departure. Why had the medico been so uncommunicative? Why had he not been frank with him, and given some idea of what it was he was up against? Only once had the man triumphed over the general practitioner, when he had referred to the inevitable damnation of Alfred. Why? Did he know too much? Or was what he did know so bad that he was fearful of becoming mixed up in a scandal? In any case, no man could desire a situation more promising in exciting possibilities. As he passed through the iron gates, Smith glanced up to see if any portion of his raincoat still clung to them, as evidence of his unconventional entry. But someone had evidently collected the clues. Following Willis' instructions, he turned to the left in the direction of the village, conscious of a curious feeling of expectancy. After the departure of Dr. Crane, and left to his own resources, Smith had decided upon a visit of exploration, with the object of giving the villagers a chance of passing judgment upon his likeness to Alfred Warren. He had heard of men completely forgetting their own identity, or who had deliberately traded upon the likeness they bore to others. Never, however, had he heard of anyone being plunged into such a position as that in which he now found himself. There was Adolf Beck, as he had remarked to Dr. Crane, but that proved nothing beyond the fact that one man could be so like another as to have his identity sworn away by a score of witnesses, including prison warders, in whose charge he had been for months at a time. The dramatic possibilities of the situation were endless. Clearly there was some mystery about the original Alfred, an unsavoury mystery, he decided, judging from the embarrassment of Willis and Mrs. Higgs, and the curious attitude of Dr. Crane. If Alfred Warren had done anything which rendered him amenable to the law, then the possibilities might become something more than merely dramatic. What if he were secretly married? He shuddered at the thought. Through no merit of his own he had acquired a new mother, now mercifully some two or three thousand miles away. But a hitherto unknown wife! He wondered how it would feel to be claimed as a long-lost husband. One thing was clear. He could not continue at the Grange. He could swear an affidavit that he was not Alfred Warren, it was true. But a judge might not unreasonably inquire why he had continued to occupy an obviously false and invidious position. He could not appeal to the courts to restrain people from identifying him as Alfred Warren. The obvious thing was to make a bold of it. But, somehow or other, that was the last thing he desired to do. It was all very ridiculous, he decided, as, plucking a long blade of grass, he hoisted himself upon a gate giving access to a meadow, and proceeded to clean his pipe with the leisurely deliberation of an inveterate smoker. After all, the situation might develop quite naturally and pleasantly, although at the moment he had to admit the portents were not favourable. He was roused from his thoughts and the enjoyment of his pipe by the sound of approaching footsteps. Coming towards him, from the direction of Little Bilstead, were two quaint little figures engaged apparently in an animated discussion. They looked as if they might have stepped straight out of a Jane Austen novel. They appeared to be discussing some topic of absorbing interest 
upon which they were not in entire agreement. When within a few yards of the gate on which he sat, the one nearer to him glanced in his direction. She started, paused, then stopped dead. The other, following the direction of her companion's gaze, paused in turn, then, seizing the arm of the first, hurried her along. As she who had first seen Smith passed, she bowed slightly, with a nervous, apprehensive side-glance at her companion. Smith lifted his cap, and, a minute later, they passed out of sight, round the bend in the road. He watched them disappear from view. Obviously, the one who had bowed was getting it in the neck. For some minutes he sat speculating as to the identity of the two quaint little ladies. Who could they be? Why had one hesitatingly acknowledged him, whilst the other ignored him altogether? Were they involved in some family feud with the Warrens, or was their attitude typical of what he might expect from little Bilstead's society? In any case, he told himself as he slid from the gate, the true humour of the situation would develop later. He had been walking for about five minutes, enjoying the warmth of the sunshine, when, a few yards ahead of him, there turned out from a heavily rutted lane a man in labourous corduroys, carrying a pick and a spade over his shoulder. At the sight of Smith his jaw dropped, and he stared to the full extent of his eyes. "'Well, I'll be grimed,' he stuttered at length, swinging the pick and spade from his shoulder and resting them on the roadway. "'If it aren't Mr. Alfred!' and he broke into an evil ripple of mirthless chuckles. "'Mr. Alfred!' he repeated. "'Well, I'll be grimed!' Incredibly dirty, bent, and misshapen, he seemed the embodiment of evil as he stood, his slobbering lips set in a sinister leer, his shifty little eyes fixed on Smith, who had involuntarily come to a standstill. "'You have got a nerve, mister,' he said at length gazing up at Smith. "'You have got a nerve,' he repeated, as if finding satisfaction in the words. "'You think so?' remarked Smith easily, as he looked down at the sinister figure before him. The man's stoop threw his head forward, and, as he gazed up at Smith, he looked strangely like a toad. "'I do,' was the response, uttered with an air of conviction. "'But there, you always was a rummin' and there was a grudging admiration in the man's tone. "'So you think I am Mr. Warren?' inquired Smith calmly. "'Think?' repeated the man. "'I have no need to think. You wait till old Bob Zerkettle gets back, and then you'll cop it a rummin. He's going to give you cosh. Used to go about with a gun for months, he did, and here you be a-coming back. Oh, you have got a nerve.' "'And who is Bob Thurkettle?' asked Smith, sensing revelations from the man's dark hints. "'Who's Bob Thurkettle?' Again he broke into a slobber of chuckles. "'I've fair to think you'll know all about who Bob Thurkettle is when he comes back. He ain't forgot what you done to his mother.' "'Mother?' repeated Smith, in a puzzled tone. "'What is a mother?' Ho, 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 cackled the man. What's a mother? So you come back, Mr. Alfred, and don't know the meaning of good Norfolk. You wait till old Bob gets back. He'll kill you, Mr. Alfred, sure as you're there, he added with satisfied conviction. And when will he be back? asked Smith. Ho, ho, ho. 
A cunning glint sprang into the man's eyes. "'I bean't going to tell you, or you'll just hike off. I know you. That's what you did afore,' he added, as he swung his pike and spade once more upon his right shoulder. "'Fare you well, Mr. Alfred.' And then, as if a sudden thought had struck him, he added, "'I suppose you don't know who I be?' "'I haven't the foggiest idea.' "'Don't know Tom Simmons, don't you?' "'I suppose you've forgotten about the whisky, And he leered up at Smith from under his head-brim. "'I suppose I must, as I have no recollection either of you or of the whisky. "'Well, I'll be grimed,' exclaimed Simmons. "'If that ain't a good un. "'Well, I must be getting along, Mr. Alfred,' he said, with a tinge of respect in his voice. "'Fare you well, but you wait till old Bob gets you.' And he shuffled off, murmuring, "'Who's old Bob's mother? Well, if that ain't the good un.' Smith continued on his way, his opinion of Alfred's unpopularity confirmed. He reached the village without further incident, apart from the fact that two labourers had saluted and stared at him as if he were an apparition, but he took that merely to indicate the courtesies of the countryside. Little Bilstead consisted of a spatter of houses and shops lying in a slight fold of the ground on either side of the main road. It seemed a disappointing place, neither populous nor picturesque. There were two or three people to be seen, but the general atmosphere was one of intense somnolence. He walked through the village, past the post-office and general store, and an insignificant little inn called The Pigeons, from the door of which came the smell of rank tobacco smoke and stale beer, tainting the sweetness of the morning air. Several people seemed to appear from nowhere, and stood staring at him just as the evil old man had stared a few minutes previously. As no one saluted or made any move to accost him, he walked leisurely on. Continuing along the main road, he strove to evolve something like a definite course of action from the tangle of his thoughts. Wisdom told him that the best thing to do was to leave Alfred Warren a little bilstead, the one to his destiny, the other to its dullness. There was something else, however, that bade him see the thing through. He had all the time there was, as the Americans say. Why not stay on for a few days and see what drama really had in her pouch? At the end of an hour he turned and retraced his steps. As he neared Little Bilstead again, he found himself more than ever reluctant to abandon what promised to afford an interesting, not to say exciting, adventure. As he entered the village for the second time, it was obvious that unseen eyes had been on the watch. The whole place seemed suddenly to have come to life. Groups of women stood at their doors, and there was a generous sprinkling of men. As Smith approached, they seemed all to be smitten with a great silence. Some saluted him as Mr. Alfred, but there was no cordiality in either their looks or their words. At the door of the pigeons stood a big man with a bald head, surrounded by a fringe of sandy hair, a heavily jowled face with small pig-like eyes destitute of lashes. "'Morning, Mr. Alfred,' he called out when Smith was within a pace or two of him. Smith nodded and paused. "'Surprising seeing you back,' said the man. For a moment Smith hesitated as to whether or no he should enlighten the fellow as to his real identity, but he decided that it would be useless to do so, for wherever he went he was accepted as Mr. Alfred without question. "'Seen Bob Thurkettle?' inquired the man with a sly look in his little eyes. "'Bob Thurkettle?' repeated Smith. 
No. Who's he? I saw a queer old fellow on the hill, but he said his name was Tom Simmons. The man took his clay pipe from his mouth and stared at Smith in frank amazement. Oh, give over, Mr. Alfred, he cried. There aren't nothing to joke about, that's a sure moral. There was something in the man's manner that prompted Smith to pass on with a curt nod. Things were becoming quite interesting, he decided, as he walked slowly in the direction of the Grange. "'What about Bob Thurcutter's mother?' The suddenness of the cry from behind caused him to start perceptibly, otherwise he took no notice, and the cry was not repeated. The attitude of the villagers made it clear that, whatever Alfred Warren's popularity with the servants at the Grange, there was obviously some very good reason why he had left Little Bilstead, and an even better one for his not returning. Everything seemed to turn upon old Bob's mother, whatever that might mean. Possibly Willis would be able to enlighten him. He did not attach serious importance to the statement that Bob Thurkettle, whoever he might be, really threatened his life. Still, an encounter between them would inevitably result in awkwardness, if not in an open breach of the peace. What puzzled him most was that in his own household Alfred Warren had apparently been idolized, but outside his immediate circle he appeared to be extremely unpopular. When clear of the village, he suddenly became aware that a short distance ahead of him was a tall, bent form garbed in clerical black. With hands clasped behind him, head bent forward, and a large green umbrella thrust under his left arm, he gave the impression of one whose thoughts were far away. Smith increased his pace slightly, making as much noise as he could in order to attract the old man's attention. He drew level and, for nearly a minute, walked abreast the vicar's thoughts were far away from little Bilstead. "'Good morning, sir,' he said at length. The effect upon the vicar was that of a dum-dum bullet. It stopped him, but with a suddenness for which Smith was entirely unprepared. "'Why, it's—it's—' The old man stopped, as if searching the records of his memory for Smith's identity. "'My name is Smith, sir, James Smith, but I'm supposed to be rather like—' "'Bless my soul!' broke in the vicar. "'It's Alfred Warren!' And, dropping his green umbrella into the road, he clasped Smith's hand with both his own and shook it warmly. "'Hannah said you were back,' he said, still working Smith's hand up and down. "'In fact, I came out to look for you. I've just remembered.' And he gazed at Smith with near-sighted blue eyes, as if expecting a rebuke. I knew there was something, he added, as by way of extenuation. I'm very forgetful, he continued, terribly forgetful. I would write to the bishop, but Hannah says no. But I'm not really Alfred Warren, you see. Hannah will be delighted. She will want to see you. She... He paused, as if something had just occurred to him, casting doubt upon the greatness of Hannah's joy. "'You remember Hannah,' continued the vicar. "'A wonderful manager. They call her the curate in the village.' "'Hannah?' repeated Smith. "'I'm afraid—' "'My sister,' explained the vicar. "'We were talking about you at breakfast. That is why I came out to warn you about—' He paused, in his eyes the puzzled expression 
of the man who has forgotten. "'I was saying, sir, that I am not Alfred Warren. My name is Smith, James Smith. We must be very much alike.' Smith was conscious how stilted his words sounded. As a diversion, he stooped and picked up the vicar's umbrella, which seemed to bring back to the old man a realization of his mission. Dropping Smith's hand, he took the proffered umbrella and thrust it beneath his left arm. "'And now you must come and see Hannah,' he said. "'She will explain what it was I came to tell you. She will be delighted to see you.' Judging by the expression on the faces of the two old ladies he had met that morning, Smith felt doubtful as to the accuracy of the prophecy. "'I'm afraid I have to go.' He paused but the vicar proved himself a man of action. Transferring the umbrella to his right arm, he linked his left through Smith's, and, a moment later, was striding along, once more apparently lost in thought. Smith had perforce to keep pace with him. He could not tear himself away from the old man's friendly grasp, and there seemed nothing for it but to acquiesce in the vicar's determination to take him to Hannah. At the end of five minutes the vicar suddenly swung round, and, before Smith knew what was happening, he had entered a gateway and was walking up a drive, obviously leading to the vicarage. A minute later they passed through the French windows into the drawing-room, where the vicar left him, with a murmured excuse that he would go and find Hannah. It was a bright and cheerful room, and, with a sigh of content, Smith dropped into a comfortable-looking chair. He was feeling pleasantly tired with his walk, and after the warm sun without, the coolness of the vicarage drawing-room was peculiarly soothing. Somewhere in the distance a door banged, and then the heavy silence of a summer midday descended upon the room, broken only by the loud ticking of the ormolu clock upon the marble mantelpiece. Five minutes lengthened into ten, ten minutes into a quarter of an hour, a quarter of an hour into half an hour, and still no vicar. Obviously, the absent-minded cleric had forgotten about him, and in all probability was deep in the composition of Sunday's sermon. Still, it was very restful, and time was to him of no object. Suddenly he sat upright, and blinked several times, at a tall, spare woman with calm grey eyes and a firm mouth, who stood gazing down at him. A moment later he had scrambled to his feet. As he did so, he caught sight of the dial of the ormolu clock. Its hands chronicled that just an hour had elapsed since he had entered the room. I, "'I'm afraid I was asleep,' he apologized. "'Did Janet show you in here?' asked the owner of the grey eyes. "'No, the vicar,' smiled Smith, realizing that he had indeed forgotten. "'My brother is very forgetful. I must apologize,' she said, as she extended her hand. "'Have you been here long? We heard you were back.' "'An hour,' said Smith, taking the long, tapering hand in his. "'And I am not Alfred Warren,' he added. With a motion of her head she bade him resume his chair, seating herself upon a high-backed chair opposite. For some seconds she sat eyeing him steadily. "'Not Alfred Warren,' she said at length, and Smith realized from her tone that another had gone over, bag and baggage, to the enemy. "'I am in a most unhappy position.' he continued, wishing he could remember the vicar's name. Willis had mentioned it. Everyone here insists that I am Alfred Warren, and it's a little embarrassing, he concluded lamely. For fully a minute Miss Lipscombe sat regarding him with a keen, steady gaze, as if intent upon seeing right into his soul. 
my brother recognized you? She queried at length. In a flash, he replied gloomily. Everybody does. That's what makes it all so embarrassing. May I tell you the whole story? He added. There was something about her that inspired confidence. She nodded. Miss Lipscombe was notorious for her economy in words upon certain occasions. In the village it exercised an excellent effect, for, with every wrong thought that entered a little Bilsteadian brain, there was a vision of the grey eyes and steady gaze of the vicar's sister. In as few words as possible, Smith told of the happenings of the last twelve hours, omitting all mention of the reference to Bob Thurkettle's mother. He must first find out what a mother actually was. At the end of his recital, Miss Lipscombe was still gazing straight into his eyes. "'And now,' he added with a smile, "'if you go over to the Warrenites, I shall feel that I am in a hopeless position.' "'But why not prove who you are?' she asked. "'Because there are reasons why I can tell you only that I am plain James Smith,' he replied gravely. "'That is not my real name,' he added hastily. "'I think I ought to tell you that.' but it will serve for the time being. "'The likeness is remarkable,' she remarked, still fixing him with her keen grey eyes. "'But surely,' he began, and then paused. It seemed mean to call attention to the weaknesses of Alfred Warren's character by inquiring if it were not stamped upon his features. "'There are no differences that could not be accounted for by six years of changed—' She paused, as if searching for the correct word. "'Environment?' he suggested, relieved that she should have read his thoughts aright. She nodded. "'That is what has puzzled me,' he said, feeling that her remark had established a bond between them. She was obviously a clear thinker and a sound reasoner. Six years change a man,' she remarked musingly. "'You look stronger and harder, both mentally and physically. You served during the war?' "'Every hour of it,' he said simply. "'Physical discipline begets moral and mental discipline,' she remarked, still as if to herself rather than to him. Again Smith saw the straw at which he was clutching, about to be swept beyond his reach. "'You'd better come and stay at the vicarage.' At this startling announcement he sat bolt upright. "'Stay at the vicarage?' he repeated. "'Why?' "'You cannot very well continue at the Grange whilst disclaiming your identity.' "'The identity of Alfred Warren,' he corrected her gently. "'It amounts to the same thing,' she replied grimly. "'You'd better arrange with Willis to send your things over,' she added practically. "'And now I must go and see about my brother's luncheon.' And she rose. "'So you won't believe in me as James Smith,' he said as he rose. "'I preserve an open mind,' was the response, as they stood facing one another each trying to read beyond the reserve barrier of cultured people. "'I give you my word that I am not Alfred Warren,' he said quietly. "'We dine at half-past seven, was the reply. But the firm line of her mouth broke, and Smith realized that she had indeed an open mind. End of chapter 5